This is the Plant Advice Gardening Podcast, Episode 12. Gardening Jobs and Plants of Interest for March. Plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs. Hello and welcome to the Plant Advice Gardening Podcast, the podcast to help you get the best out of your garden with our regular features such as our plant of the month, perfect pairing, two plants that go well together, jobs to do in the garden and plants of note for this time of year. I'm Richard Farrer and I'm George Munford. Coming up in this episode, we'll be discussing council flowerbeds for local town councils, municipal flowerbeds, something George and I have talked about in past issues of our podcast. George has a different opinion to me about whether they're worthwhile or not from a cost perspective in times of austerity. We'll also have our plant of the month for March, which is Magnolia stellata. Perfect pairing, two plants that complement each other, are Edgeworthia chrysantha and Aubrecia purple cascade. We'll have jobs to do in the garden and vegetable garden for March. And plants of note, Camellia cross Williamsii, Jury's yellow and Prunus kanzan. We've also got a question from a listener which is about winter flowering pansies being eaten by woodlice. So, George, we're into March now. This kind of heralds the start of spring, although we've had quite a warm winter, haven't we? Very wet, but quite mild. The soil's beginning to warm up and the bulbs are emerging. The crocuses and snowdrops are out and the daffodils are out now. Yes, that's right, Richard. It makes you wonder if winter is finished, doesn't it? Because there's always a transition period. And last year we had snow in March, so it's difficult to say whether it's finished or not or whether there's still a sting in the tail doesn't feel like we've really had much of a winter, though. No, it's been so mild. I've seen people cutting their grass already. Must be confusing for the plants. They're coming out really early. Yes, and that's what I mean. Um, hopefully they're not going to get hit by some cold weather. That would be a bit nasty for them. Well, in past episodes, we've talked about Anglesey Abbey, a garden in Cambridgeshire that we visit a few times. They've got a lovely winter garden. And coming up next month, we've got an interview with Richard Todd, who is the head gardener at Anglesey Abbey. And when I went down there, I had another look. And I think in the last episode, episode 11 of our podcast, George, you talked about the Ophipogon, the black grass-like plant, which was planted under dogwoods and not as birch as you thought. You oh, Well, you suggested birches. Yes, I'm sure I've seen it there, planted under white-stemmed birches. There's also an ornamental bramble called Rubus coburnianus. That has very bright white stems that you could plant it around. Yeah, I saw those there. They are quite vicious-looking things. That's right. But I wouldn't plant it with any other plant that doesn't have white stems. I think the black and white contrast is really important. It really looks really good. It does, brings it off much more. It's interesting, I think they change plants around to keep the interest for people that go back year after year. Yes, I suppose that's a good idea, and in the same way that's what the councils do with their flower beds, isn't it, Richard? Indeed, indeed, indeed. You also mentioned, back in episode 9, about the Sarcococa hookeriana being a, a quite a fragrant plant. Well, I'd never witnessed it myself until I went back to Anglesey Abbey. 
And you're not kidding, it's beautiful in winter, isn't it? It really is quite fragrant. Yes, you noticed it, did you? I did indeed. They've planted it just by the car park, so as you get out of your car and walk into the Anglesey Abbey entrance, you get this waft of the beautiful aroma of the Saka Coca. Yes, and I'm assuming that you get that smell from it 24 hours a day during the winter months. I'd be interested to know if you've still got that fragrance at night, for example. Well, you might get locked up if you start sneaking around in the middle (laughs) of the night down there. So the main feature we've got this month is an interview that I did with Dennis Smith, who is the Parks Manager at Huntingdon Town Council. He works with Alison Mills, who is the Coordinator for Huntingdon in Bloom. And George and I have often talked about council flower beds. I love them. I think they look really nice. But they do obviously cost pennies to do. And in times of austerity, when council pennies are quite tight, is that the best way to be spending money? I think it works out well, it doesn't cost that much, and I think it really lifts civic spirits. So I caught up with Dennis, and he explained what's involved in maintaining council flower beds and the costs involved. So Dennis, thank you very much for giving us some time to speak to us. You run the Parks Department for Huntingdon Town Council. What does your remit include? I'm in charge of all the Parks Department, I'm in charge of... Green open spaces, flower beds, cemeteries, churchyards, allotments, um, sports fields, that type of thing. Quite a lot of stuff. Yes. And how many staff do you have? Well, I've got five under me, so there's six of us in total. Six of you in total. And that's full-time throughout full-time, the year? Yes, yeah. full-time throughout the year. reason I've come to speak to you today, I think, primarily, is to do with flower beds, because George and I, previously on our podcast, have discussed flower beds... I really like the flower beds. I think they're lovely. I think they do lift the town and, and give a bit of civic pride. George does like the flower beds, but I know he's in this time of austerity and government cutbacks. He questions a little bit about the spending and how much is spent on flower beds and could it be spent elsewhere. Do, do you know offhand what your budget is for flower beds each year? Well, we're obviously given a budget each year we discuss it with the town clerk and put it before the councillors to what money we think we need to spend for the forthcoming year but it's somewhere about £12,000 a year at the moment. And how many flower beds do you have around the town? Now that's a good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head but I would think it's somewhere about 15 15, and then we do 200 hanging baskets and flower troughs as well around the town. They must take a lot more looking after from a watering perspective, I guess, hanging baskets. Um, they're very similar to the flower beds to a degree. It depends on the weather, obviously. The hotter the weather, the more uptake of water there will be from the hanging baskets. Uh, and obviously the more growth there is on the plants, the more they're going to take up the water. But the, um, the hanging baskets which we use have got a, a reservoir in them with an um, absorbent wick. Yeah. So in the early part of the season and the end of the season, where you get the shorter days and the cooler temperatures, you can fill them up once a week and they will last all week. When you get in the middle of the summer where things are growing fast and there's a big uptake of water, then we have to fill them up twice a week. Now, are these sort of things readily available for the average punter? Because that sounds like a great thing to have at home. At home, Sue has to go and water our flower hanging baskets every day, sometimes twice a day in the hot weather. If we could have something like that, that's great, water it once a week and forget. Yes, the day of the old um, moss line hanging baskets have gone now. The downside of them is obviously they're made of plastic, um, so you've got... 
the colour of the plastic. But once the hanging plants grow, they soon cover the basket up. But yes, we're now in the 21st century and we've got a thing called the internet. And if you go onto the internet and put in self-water in hanging baskets, they will come up. I'll have to look at it, Dennis. That sounds fantastic. What sort of diameter, what size hanging baskets are you talking about? Uh, the ones we're doing at the moment are somewhere about 18 inches. But so they're can, a good generous size. They're a good they? generous yeah. size. If you want a good display, then obviously you've got to have a, a biggish basket and put plenty of plants in. Uh, I think the home producer will have a little tiny hanging basket and put three plants in, but it never looks anything, does it? You've got to, yeah. If you want a good display, you've got to fill Pack it full it of full. plants. So the bigger the basket, the better the display. And what sort of plants would you recommend then for a good long display throughout the year or throughout the summer season? And there's, there's so many things to choose from at the moment. One of the favourites, obviously, is petunias. And there's so many different varieties of petunias which you can use now, and the breeders are bringing different ones out each year. Uh, the most common one which you, could, you see for sale in the garden centres would be one called Superfina. That is getting surpassed now because the trouble with Superfinas is that it will flower only at the bottom of the growing uh, stem and it leaves the top bare. So you need to compensate that by planting something in the top which will cover that. Um, but there's new varieties now called Fanfare, which is a good variety, which flowers all the way down the stem. They're quite expensive to buy because they're cutting rays from specialist nurseries, but you can grow them there from seed. So you can grow uh, varieties like Wave, which is a, a good variety, which can be grown from seed and relatively cheap to grow. And, and they put a good display in. How do you bring plants on? Do you propagate things yourself to save pennies? Do you buy plugs in? Do you buy seeds in? What, or a combination of? A combination of. You, I have a budget to keep, so I look at um, what the budget is, and rather than buy, we'll say, for example, Petunia Fanfare, which is a very good variety, but is a cutting range one and quite expensive to buy because you've got to buy the cutting in and also it's got breeders' rights on it, which you've got to pay for. So I will buy so many of those and I will grow some from seed, some of the wave varieties, which are okay, but they're not quite as good as the Fanfares. But then you've got other things to put in the basket as well, geraniums or napita or something like that which is going to help just set it off a bit. And when you're designing these baskets, do you sort of sit down with a piece of paper and sketch out what you're going to do in a range of baskets at the beginning of the season? Or do you just sort of get your hands dirty and mug in and go for it? Um, I tend to theme certain areas, like the high street, we'll decide we're going to do it in pink or red or purple and silver or a combination of colours. We're all the while looking at what other people are doing and, and picking up ideas and colour schemes. With a municipal hanging basket, you want something where you're going to get colour and bright, which stands out. I think the home market is very much pastel shades, but they're not always acceptable in a municipal situation where you want to brighten up the high street or... That's so true. You've got to be aware of your environment, haven't you, to get it to fit in with the environment. Yes. Yeah. And do you try to go for one sort of striking colour theme and a reduced range of plants, to say two or three types of plants in a hanging basket, or do you have a, a large variety in each hanging basket? Well, it will depend on the area which I'm going to do, but I will say I'll put predominantly pink or predominantly purple, as far as petunias are concerned, but then I'll put an odd white one in or an odd contrasting colour and then I would put a silver foliage plant in as well to set the colours off. And then obviously something in the top, like Nicotiana or something, or geranium to give the basket some height. 
And during the season when you're watering, do you feed them at all with any plant feed? Yes, as we water, we're always adding plant feed into the water. And what sort of plant feed do you use or, or recommend? There's several on the market. I mean, for the common household people, there's Fosterin or miracle Grow. We use uh, a Vitax product, which we buy a 25-kilo bag from a horticultural wholesaler. That would be a lot for someone at home, though, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, but if you're just for the home people, you can go to any garden centre or place and buy Fosterin or, or miracle Grow. And do you deadhead the plants at all to try and increase the flowering? No, no you don't? No. Because that would be quite labour-intensive, yes. I guess. You've yeah. obviously got to climb up to the hanging basket, haven't you, to well, do it? Yes. Yeah. That's something people can do at home, I guess, to extend the flowering season. Yes, to a degree. Yeah. And the beds themselves, the actual the flower beds dotted around the town, what do you look at putting in those as a range of plants? Well, we're all, all looking for something different, uh, different colour combinations, different plant combinations, plants that grow at different heights, so you try and get a pyramid effect, so you've got the taller plants in the middle going down to the low ones at the front. You're all the while looking for um, what other local authorities are doing. We'll go to trial grounds where the seed companies will have an open day and they'll have all their new varieties on trial and, and different combinations. You can, you can go to the extent of the colour wheel where you can look at the colour wheel where you, the, it'll show you where... You can choose opposite colours, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very much a personal taste, isn't it? Indeed, it's very, very much. Per- I think the days of the old municipal flower beds where you've got sort of red salvias and, and yellow marigolds, the red and yellows clashing in the, in the council parks, I think they're gone a bit now, uh, and we're all the time looking for something different, different colour combinations. Much more sophisticated. Yes, yeah. I mean, pink and, and silver is quite good at the moment. Purple and silver always seems to go well. And very often, if there's something on nationally we'll say a silver jubilee or something like that then we'll try and theme the beds you try and in a silvery colour some of the church flower beds in the churches where you've got weddings and you know we might perhaps lean towards white and this year it's the anniversary isn't it at the beginning of world war one have you got any plans to commemorate that in the flower beds yes we do at different times carpet bedding and that is basically what it is. It looks like a carpet, and you buy specialist plants uh, which can be trimmed off. You've perhaps seen it with the old clock at the seaside. That was always used to be the... Yeah. I mean, carpet bed was done a lot in, lot in Victorian times, and you plant the plants about an inch and a half apart to create a picture, like a carpet, and you, you keep like it a, trimmed up. Like a mosaic made like out a of mosaic. plants, yeah. And this year we're going to do the British Legion poppy, the pale poppy which you yeah. would buy in the high street, as a carpet bed. If you want it to be successful, you need to keep it relatively simple. Uh, some people try and do it and get it a bit too fussy, and then you look at it and you can't really see what it's meant to be. So that's what we're doing on, on one. Of course, high density of plants on a flower bed and, and does quite that help expensive. To keep, does that help to keep the weeds down by packing the plants in? It does to a degree, but you still get things like chickweed and that sort of thing, which will grow through, and, and once it grows through and gets on top of the plants, then you're, you know, you're, you're struggling. I guess you've got the different seasons, haven't you? Like you've got spring and then you've got summer and autumn. Will you have, say, three different flower beds plantings throughout the season or will you try and get something which will maintain itself through the life of the year? If you're doing bedding plants, uh, which we are at the moment, we will do summer bedding plants. You know, things like your geraniums, your begonia semperflorans, this type of thing. 
they will be pulled out at the end of the sort of the summer when the frosts come. This will be end of September, October time, and then we'll be replanting again with autumn bedding plants, things like pansies, bellas, forget-me-nots, spring flowering bulbs, which are just starting to flower at the moment. And they will then be pulled out again May time and replanted with summer bedding. The swing with some of local authorities now have to go to sustainable planting with herbaceous plants and this sort of thing. Things that keep coming back Which keep year coming after back. Year. You don't yeah. have to keep replanting, you just have to maintain them. I suppose that's where my friend George was coming into uh, the discussion which we had about council flower beds before, was the concept of using herbaceous plants which keep coming back, which then keeps the cost of plants down each year. How would you say, if you've got your budget of £12,000-ish for your flower beds and things like that, what percentage is the actual stock compared to, say, labour? Or is your budget of 12000 for plants themselves? Yes, it's the £12,000 would be basically for the plants, the compost, the so everything pots, for that, the flower that beds. That type that, of thing. That's what you can spend on, on the plants. The labour costs wouldn't really come into it because at the end of the day we are employed to do a job and whether we're planting plants or picking litter or sweeping leaves. You're doing the job still anyway. Have to, yeah. It's the job, isn't it? I'm surprised you get a chance to do any of that with all these flower beds. It sounds like a full-time job, Dennis. And do you use any more sort of exotic plants like cannas or something like that in your flower beds? Over the last few years, there's obviously been a big swing to find something interesting, something different, something that stands out, something that people will ask and what's that. So we've gone to things like cannas, abutilons, colcassias, that type of thing. But you've got to have the right summer for them. Yeah. They are, at the end of the day, they're Mediterranean-type plants, which we've all seen when we've been on our holidays in the Mediterranean. And you've got to have the right summer. Last year we had a good summer, let's hope we do this year. We went to holiday uh, in Germany last year and they had quite a few cannas in there, in Bavaria, in their municipal flower beds. And I did spot a few when I came back here. Now, will you then dig those up and overwinter them in greenhouses and plant them back out again? Or will you get new stock each year for something like that? If you're growing, for example, cannas, which yes, they they grow a lot in France, they grow a lot in, in Germany, haven't really caught on here to be fair, because I think of the, the climate. But yes, you can dig them up, dry them off, store the tubers and start them off again in the summertime. Because I think they are lovely plants. And earlier you we were talking about the height and making the pyramid effect. A canna in the middle of a bed is quite an architectural sort of statement, isn't it? Yes. And quite different foliage than a lot of plants you see in conventional sort of flower beds. Yes, so we've, cannas is one that's used. I mean, the, the castor oil plant is another one that's been used to great effect. Um, I said tried cold cassias, that didn't really work very well. Abutilums is another one they've tried. So you're always searching for something new to try? That's right. Well, all the, and when you go on holiday, you're sad people, you all sort of look what uh, they're doing at the seaside. Absolutely. Or, like you just yeah. said, you go to Germany or whatever, and you, you look what they're doing. Well, we go to quite a few of the flower shows, and we go to RHS Tatton Park, which is um, up north in Cheshire, and one of the categories they had there is municipal flower beds, and some of the flower beds they have are incredibly ornate, really are wonderful. You can get some real inspiration. Ever thought of exhibiting there? No, I don't think we're uh, quite to their, um, their standards. I'm sure you could be, Dennis. Don't put yourself down. Why not? Um, Fight for Huntington. But yes, I've, you know, I've obviously seen, um, seen the flower beds on the internet. You can do ideas. Of course, some of them do go, go in for 3D as well, 3D displays, which we tried one year. But um, it's another thing that you can do and a lot of authorities like to do. 
Yeah, real challenge. Well, I really enjoy the flower beds you have around Huntington. We always, as we're driving around the Ring Road, we're looking at the different flower beds, pointing them out. I think you do a fantastic job and uh, keep at it. And thanks to you and for your team. And thanks very much for giving us the time to talk to us today. Thank you. So, George, there we have it, the answer, £12,000 per annum for all the plants, the seeds, the compost and the containers. Do you think that's bad? That sounds very reasonable to me, Richard. I don't think it's that bad, considering the displays they get. They do have their own greenhouses, so they are bringing seeds and growing things themselves. And as Dennis said, they've got the labour, so the cost isn't that much extra, really. I suppose where I was coming from, Richard, and where I've always come from on this issue is about prioritising where the money should be spent, uh, the public money should be spent. For example, this year, you could argue that that £12,000 could have been spent dealing with floods. Yes, we've had a lot of floods. £12,000 would be, excuse the pun, a drop in the ocean for something like that. And having something which really does zing and lift your spirits in spring and through the summertime, I think it is part of civic pride. And we don't want to live in a dour sort of grey environment, do we? No, but what I'm trying to say is if you live in Somerset, for example, and that £12,000 is being spent in the town centre making lovely floral arrangements in the flower beds, maybe just for one year only, that money could be spent to help people in trouble in terms of clearing up the floods. That is a very good point. I think this argument could rage on forever, couldn't it? Yeah, definitely, Richard. (laughs) Something Dennis also mentioned, which I thought was a wonderful idea, are self-watering hanging baskets that they use. These baskets contain a reservoir at the bottom which can hold about six litres of water, which means they only have to water them once a week. And I think this is a brilliant idea for someone at home. If you get one of these, top it up at the beginning of the week and it should last, unless it's really, really warm, for most of the week. Yeah, that's very good. And I suspect that they also use composts, which are able to keep the water in the compost for much longer as well. You can use special gels, can't you, in a compost to retain the water a bit better? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you're interested in those type of hanging baskets, I don't know if they're available to buy as a consumer directly from the manufacturer, but you can check it out. The manufacturer's is amberol a-m-b-e-r-o-l dot co dot uk we'll put a link to that up on the show notes which you can find at plantadvice dot co dot uk slash episode 12 plant of the month now plant of the month george you've chosen magnolia stellata a star magnolia and there's a reason why it's called star magnolia isn't there That's right. The star magnolia, it has these lovely star. Each flower is made up of a number of petals and the appearance from a distance looks just like a star in the sky. It's a hardy, slow-growing shrub and it's native to Japan. It's a very popular magnolia because it's a lot smaller than many of the other much bigger ones that you can get. It only grows up to about three metres in height and four metres spread, which still sounds a lot, but it means that it can fit into the modern garden, whereas many magnolias don't. You can prune it a bit so it doesn't have to get quite to that height. That's right, you could prune it straight after flowering, I would suggest, to um, make sure you don't lose next year's flowers. The flowers are uh, produced in March and April, and although it can grow up to those dimensions that we talked about, it's actually quite slow growing, so 
It's going to only achieve three metres height and four metres spread over a long period of time. And it prefers a moist, loamy soil in full sun or partial shade. We do have a photo of that plant on our website. I'll put it up on the show notes for this page. It really does look stunning. They, I know I use this phrase a lot, stunning. Plants do give that emotive feel, don't they? But it really does look like twinkling little stars. Yes, and can you imagine looking at it in the twilight, in the evening? That, I can imagine that would make it look even more attractive. If you could perhaps underlight it at night in the garden, that would really enhance it, wouldn't it? Yes, and we talked about that before. At, they do that at the National Trust property at Anglesey Abbey. They, they have a special night during the winter where you can walk through the winter garden and it's lit up. I remember a few years back at Hampton Court Flower Show, they had one garden which was completely enclosed in a structure which blocked out all the light and it was specifically to show what lighting can do and how you can use the garden in uh, darker nights and evenings. Yes, and lighting up a garden at night is becoming more and more popular. It is, and certainly with solar-powered lights, so it's ecologically friendly as well. You're not wasting too much electricity. That's right, providing, of course, that you get enough sun to charge them. We haven't had much of that this winter, have we? No, not too much. But I suppose garden lighting has become more popular with decking. People have put more decking in their back gardens, and as a result, they might be sitting out in the evenings longer in their back gardens, on the deck, as you could say. I think people are beginning to use the gardens more as an outdoor room now for socialising, and if you're going to use it like that, why not enjoy all the plants at the same time? Absolutely, although I would rather see more plants than more decking. Agreed. Perfect pairing. Now, perfect pairing, George. You've chosen two plants for this month, which are Edgeworthia chrysantha, sometimes called the paper bush, and Aubrecia purple cascade. Aubrecia, that is the right way to pronounce it, is it? Because I've seen it spelt in two different ways. Yes, I, I think you've pronounced it correctly, Richard. I'm not really sure why it's spelt in two different ways. The spelling we to... use in here is A-U-B-R-E-T-I-A. That's right. might be worth a quick email to the RHS. They'll be able to give us an answer on that one. <laughs> they might come back and say, we don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Or Linnaeus, he um, gave all the plants. Carlos, yes, the chap that designed the binomial naming system for if, plants. If only we could talk to him, he'd be able to give us an answer on that. So yes, this month I've chosen Edgeworthia chrysantha and Aubrecia purple cascade as the perfect pairing. And for these two, you need a good site. The Edgeworthia chrysantha is not fully hardy. Now, it wouldn't have mattered this winter because we've hardly had any frost. But it would be good if you have a site maybe near the house in full sun. So it gets a bit of protection from the excesses of winter, but it is half-hardy. So what sort of temperature can it withstand? I would say a half-hardy shrub can withstand a temperature down to about minus 5. Okay, because I know last year or a year before we did have minus 15 here for a short period. Yeah, a fully hardy shrub will easily cope with minus 15 or minus 20, but a half-hardy shrub, I would suggest, is going to sustain damage under about minus 5 degrees centigrade. So Edgeworthia chrysanthia grows up to about 1.5 metres tall and it's the same in spread and it has a rounded open habit. From about February to April it has clusters of very fragrant yellow flowers and they're born in a spherical heads. 
is best grown in moist, well-drained soil in full sun or partial shade. And my idea this month, with the yellow flowers of the Edgeworthy uh, chrysantha, was to underplant it with the Aubrecia purple cascade because if you study the colour wheel like I do, then purple is opposite on the colour wheel to yellow. Which is a very useful tool we've talked about in the past for choosing colour schemes and planting in your garden. That's right. Use the colour wheel to find out which colours go best with each other and it creates a lovely visual effect in your garden, as we were talking about black and white before, weren't we? Yeah. The Aubrecia Purple Cascade is a highly perennial and it's a very popular rockery garden plant and it makes good ground cover. So it only grows up to about 30 centimetres tall and a spread of about 45 centimetres. And the rich flowers are produced from March until May. It requires full sun and the soil should be moderately fertile, well-drained and it needs to be quite poor, the soil, so not too rich in nutrients. Do you know where it comes from, Aubrecia? Is it a mountain sort of... I'm not quite sure on that one, Richard, but I think, yeah, most rockery plants come from alpine Uh, regions. Alpine, yeah. That's where they grow in the wild. And, of course, Purple Cascade is a named cultivar, so it's one that's been bred by plant breeders for its prolific flowers. Aubrecia, aren't they commonly used in hanging baskets? Um, Trailing Aubrecia, isn't it? No, I think you're thinking of Lobelia. Ah, Lobelia, yeah, my mistake. One that, yeah, there's purple-flowered yeah. Lobelia and bright blue ones as well. Yeah, Lobelia, that's, yeah. that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, and of course Lobelia is not hardy. No. Well, sure is. That's why we have to do the hanging baskets every year, isn't it? That's right, yeah. <laughs> a labour of love. And the Aubrecia will can be quite invasive over a long period of time. So the best thing to do is cut it back straight after it's flowered. I've found in the past that as it spreads, it roots where it touches the ground as it spreads. So you end up with, although it only looks like one plant. Lots of little plants. Yeah, you end up with lots of little plants. And that's why it could easily spread over three or four metres when, in fact, I've suggested it only grows to 45 centimetres wide. That's just one plant. It self-propagates, basically. So something to keep on top of and control it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, that plant and the others we've talked about in this episode, we've got links to these on our website and the show notes to this page at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 12. There are buttons there that if you're living in the UK, you can click on and buy online from Crocus or Seeds from Thomas Morgan, which are quite handy. I think the prices are quite reasonable. I bought some stuff myself from Crocus in the past. I think you have, George. Yes, they are reasonable, aren't they? Yeah saves the trip down to the garden centre, which, if it's a while away, can cost a bit in fuel as well. Jobs to do in the garden. Now, jobs to do in the garden for March, George. It's warming up. There must be quite a bit more to be doing now. Absolutely. So we're thinking one season ahead and our summer bedding, if we want to grow it ourselves, we can start sowing seeds indoors of our summer bedding this month. So either in a heated greenhouse or on a sunny windowsill or maybe in a conservatory, start sowing seeds of your summer bedding. There are many shrubs that can be pruned this month. Richard mentioned the dogwood. That's pruned this month, hard, just a few inches from the top of the soil. And you need to do that to generate new growth for the colourful stems for next year. That's right. I mean, you could leave it, but the best colour on the stems is on the youngest wood. So if you keep the wood young, you'll get the best colours. Uh, you can also prune buddleias at this time of year. 
ones that flower in the late summer, for example, all the Buddleia Davidi cultivars. There's other roses that can be pruned and many other shrubs that can be pruned this month. The ornamental grasses, a lot of those look tired at this time of year after the winter, so you can cut those down to ground level at this time of year. That sounds quite brutal, but they really do need it, don't they? That's right. Well, if you think of your lawn, your lawn always looks best if it's regularly cut, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And so the ornamental grasses are no different. They don't need cutting every week like the lawn, but once a year you cut them hard back and they'll reshoot with lots of new growth. We need to be feeding our container-grown ericaceous shrubs at this time of the year, uh, e.g. the camellias and rhododendrons. Which both need ericaceous soil, don't they? That's right, yeah. We should be growing those in ericaceous, loam-based compost. This month you can top-dress the borders with well-rotted compost or manure, if you haven't already done that during the winter months. And if there's any congested clumps of herbaceous plants in your borders... They can be lifted and divided. You might have one big plant and you can split that up into five or six and give some to your friends as well if you like. And as I mentioned before, some people are already cutting their grass because it's been so mild, so you can start that this month. In the vegetable garden. And jobs to do in the vegetable garden, George? Yes, indoors we can be sowing seeds of aubergines and tomatoes. Outside, French beans can be sown out with carrots as well. Both can be sown outside under cloches. Broad beans, onion seeds and sets, Brussels sprouts and spinach, they can all be sown, sowing seeds of those this month. And also garlic cloves can be planted out this month and the tubers of Jerusalem artichokes and young sea kale plants. Artichokes sound quite an exotic vegetable, really. Yes, I've grown them before in a front garden to create a shield because they grow very tall very quickly. can be quite invasive. Well, if they look good and you can eat them, it's a double whammy, isn't it? Yeah, very useful. And I think there is more of a trend nowadays for mixing vegetables and edible plants in flower beds. Yes, there is. And one of the reasons for that is because it provides pest control. For example, if you want to grow a crop of carrots... If you grow them all around the garden rather than just in one spot, then it makes it life a bit more difficult for the carrot root fly, which give it some work to do rather than planting all your carrots in one spot. <laughs> They've got to fly further. Yeah, make them, give them a bit of a pain by having to fly all around the garden looking for the carrots rather than just giving them their own restaurant to dine at. <laughs> it's like companion planting, but a bit more spread out. That's right, and... The other thing that you can do, of course, is plant bedding plants and there's other plants that you can plant amongst the vegetables that will attract predators. For example, you could plant some bedding marigolds amongst your vegetables and they will attract hoverflies, which will eat aphids. Much better if you can do it organically like that, isn't it? Yeah, who wants to eat vegetables covered in chemicals? Certainly not me. Absolutely. Now, plants of note, George, you've chosen Camellia cross Williamsii, Jury's yellow, which is a camellia. Yes, this is um, an evergreen shrub. It's quite fast growing. The flowers are absolutely stunning, aren't they, Richard? Have you seen them? I do have a camellia myself grown in a pot, and when they do come out, they're 
sometimes mistaken by some people for roses, they're really blousy, very full flowers. So you do get a, a real show from them, don't you? Yes, and this particular one has, I particularly like the flowers on this one. It has, I think they're quite unusual. You don't often see a yellow camellia. I certainly don't anyway. You often see the reds and the pinks. Yeah, mine's pink. But this one is has pale yellow flowers and the, the centre of the flower is pale yellow and it gradually turns white towards the outer petals. Very elegant, isn't it? It is. It's sort of a lemony yellow colour, isn't it, in yeah. the middle? And the flowers are in March and April and it has the RHS Award of Garden Merit. And the foliage is almost as stunning as the flowers. It's on any camellia, really. It's very glossy and polished look, isn't it? A bit like a laurel. That's right, but I think that dark colour to it is even more attractive than the laurel. Camellia Williamsii Jury's Yellow will grow up to two and a half metres tall and two metres spread. It needs partial shade and you should always avoid with camellias an east-facing position as early morning sun can damage the flowers and it can even damage the emerging buds. Whoops, mine's (laughs) east-facing. It seems to survive. Yeah, I think that might have something to do with the shelter that you've got as well, Richard. Yeah, it's in a little sort of corridor alleyway, isn't it? Yeah, although yours is east-facing, it's surrounded by building, isn't it? I wonder if that actually stops the sun getting on it. Yeah, it's going to get quite a bit of shade. It's only going to get sun for a very narrow period of time, isn't it? Yeah, and of course the thing is with camellias, is if you don't have the right soil for them, you can plant them in a large container and then you can control the compost at the growing medium that you're growing them in. And then Prunus Kanzan, which is a Japanese flowering cherry. Yeah, now this is one of the best spring flowering cherries that there is. It's a hardy deciduous tree, growing up to 10 metres tall and 10 metres spread, and it is absolutely laden during March and April with double pink flowers. So many flowers almost that you almost think that the branches are going to snap off. It again has the RHS Award of Garden Merit, And as well as the flowers, the foliage opens in a bronzy colour in the spring. It then turns to dark green throughout the year. And then as autumn approaches, it has a bronzy orange colour then. A tree that has real nice interest throughout the year. Yeah, lots of colours there, isn't there? There's the pinks and the bronze and the green. And the cherry blossoms are absolutely amazing, aren't they? Yes, aren't they? It's like confetti falling down when they do start losing the flowers. Absolutely fantastic, isn't it? That is one of the highlights of spring, the the blossom in the air. I've never been to Japan, but I can imagine going and see rows and rows of these trees would just be awe-inspiring. Absolutely lovely. Your questions. Now, listeners' questions. This month we've got a question from Terry Esling. I hope I pronounced that right. Terry says, Hi, my window box planters are planted up with winter flowering pansies, but they are getting eaten away by wood lice. I have tried a chemical treatment previously, but it doesn't seem to stop them. Any ideas, please? With this one, Richard, I'm... I haven't really got quite enough information at the moment. I'd like to know what the planters are made of. I've got a sneaky suspicion they might be made of wood. Maybe they're getting a bit old, and I wonder if the wood lice are there because of the decaying wood on the the planters. It might have something to do with the compost. Has the compost been changed regularly? I'd be quite surprised if wood lice would attack healthy bedding plants. I think there's another issue here. 
I think you could be onto something there. Wood, I suppose there might be a bit of a clue in the name there, wood lice. They do like rotting wood. I think that could be a good idea. I wonder. Well, Terry, have a check to see what your window box is made from. It might be quite difficult to change them if they're already made of wood and it might be quite a costly exercise. I don't know what else you could do there, George. Uh, Yeah, I'm just... The question in my head is, would the wood lice be there if it was a brand new clay or ceramic pot with brand new fresh compost? I doubt it. Do you think perhaps then as spring comes, you can empty out the planter and maybe treat the wood with a good treatment to preserve it? That might stop the wood lice munching on it, if that is what they're doing. Absolutely, I think you could, yeah, but... The fact that the wood lice are there, I mean, that really makes me suspect that the wood is seen much better days. We don't know from Terry whether there there might not be wooden planters, but I suspect they might be. Well, Terry, get back to us, let us know. Maybe that gives you something to think on. I'm sorry we can't categorically give you an answer, but it might point you in the right direction. Well, that's about it for this episode. Coming up next month, we've got an interview with Richard Todd, who is the head gardener at Anglesey Abbey, one of George's and I's favourite places. It's a National Trust stately home property in Cambridgeshire, which has a beautiful winter garden, amongst other gardens. And I managed to speak to Richard a few weeks back, who explained the theory and planting behind the winter garden and how they look after it. It really was quite an interesting chat with Richard. If you've got any questions, please email us at podcast at plantadvice.co.uk. We will do our very best to answer them. And as spring is the time for planting out your seedlings and new plants, we do have a range of custom labels that you can get on our website at plantadvice.co.uk slash labels. They're made from external grade laminate plastic and are engraved. Uh, we've got a few different sizes and varieties. We do do a special promotional pack of 10 labels, which includes labels for carrots, lettuce, spinach, onions, leeks, garlics, courgettes, beetroot, cabbage and potatoes for £5.99. Unfortunately, it is just for customers in the UK, but they might be useful so you can remember what you planted where. So I think that's all from us for this episode. Thanks ever so much for listening, and we hope you'll listen again next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. This podcast was brought to you by plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs.